I'm Sarah Kelleher, and this is Psych in the City, a podcast about sexuality, relationships, and health. One psychotherapist, me, gives you the sex and psych education you didn't get in social work school, or most likely anywhere. Hello, and welcome back to Psych in the City podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kelleher. Today we have a really interesting episode. I am interviewing Andrew Hartman, who is a co-founder of the Surrogate Partner Collective and a certified surrogate partner with 12 years experience. Andrew currently practices in the San Francisco Bay Area and is willing to travel to other locations. Andrew is an interpersonal relationship consultant specializing in recovery from trauma and a thought leader in the field of surrogate partner therapy. He has been practicing as a surrogate partner for 13 years and regularly shares the wisdom of his experience by mentoring surrogate partners in training and by presenting to university classes, therapist organizations, and the general public about surrogate partner therapy. He's committed to revitalizing SBT as a relevant and important healing modality to increasing diversity of both practitioners and clients and raising standards within the profession. You can find out more at surrogatepartner.us. The Surrogate Partner Collective is a network of surrogate partners and collaborating clinicians that provide education, certification, advocacy, and outreach. The vision is to cultivate a world of embodied connection by teaching people how to love themselves and others. They are committed to revitalizing surrogate partner therapy as a relevant and important healing modality and to raising standards within the profession. So Andrew is going to explain this a lot better than I can, but before we start, I just want to go over a definition of what a surrogate partner is because... The surrogate partner and surrogate partner therapy is still not, I would say, mainstream in the sex and relationship therapy world, um, at least not for many practitioners. And Andrew and the team are hoping to change that. So a surrogate partner is a trained professional whose role is to partner with the client. The therapist, surrogate partner, and client work together and design experiential exercises that remove anxiety and build awareness and skills in the areas the client wishes to enhance. This can involve trust, body image, touch, relaxation, communication, social skills, sensuality, and physical and emotional intimacy exercises. Exercises are chosen for their therapeutic value and relevance to the client's goal. The surrogate partner participates with the client in these exercises. And so the surrogate partner and the client form a temporary relationship for the sake of, again, reaching the client's therapeutic goals. That information is directly from the Surrogate Partner Collective website, which is the surrogatepartnercollective.org website. And I will list all of the resources that Andrew mentions and we talk about in the show notes. So definitely check it out. And without further ado, let's get going. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Hartman. Hello, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, I am 
really excited to talk to you about surrogate partner therapy, um, which is something I know about, but want to know a lot more about. And so tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are and what you do to get us started. Well, my name is Andrew Hartman. I use he, him pronouns. I'm located out about half hour outside of San Francisco. And I've been practicing as a surrogate partner now for 13 years. On my way to get here, I've also had careers throughout my life as being a software engineer and working in high tech, a real estate agent, a professional organizer. Oh, cool. Um, and there's another one too, but I don't remember it right now. Like organizing people's things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Organizing people's belongings and helping people have a different relationship with their possessions. Ah. And that's actually part of this bigger picture because for me, it's all about relationships. Mm. And that brings me to surrogate partner therapy. So I am currently, and for the past 13 years, have been working as a surrogate partner. And because many people don't know what that means, I'd like to take a moment to define it. Yes. Tell us what that means. What, okay. it, what is it that you do? A surrogate partner works in a therapeutic modality called surrogate partner therapy. Surrogate partner therapy is intended for clients who have some sort of difficulty with the way they do relationships. It could be socially, could be sexually, or could be in the context of intimacy. And they haven't been able to resolve this issue either from their own life experience or from verbal therapy alone. Mm -hmm. In order to help someone like this, we create a therapeutic environment that is both real life and supportive at the same time. And we do this by having the client meet with two different professionals. The client is meeting with both a surrogate partner. The surrogate partner does hands-on experiential exercises with the client. And in so doing, forms a temporary relationship with them. This temporary relationship becomes the real-life environment that allows them to take risks and try things and to learn the skills they haven't been able to learn in other contexts. At the same time, they're also seeing a therapist or verbal clinician that helps them integrate the experience into their self-concept and to get emotional or cognitive support or anything else they need. So it's basically a combination of hands-on experiential learning and real life experiences with the support of, of therapy. Wow. I never thought of it in terms of social as well. Like I really have only thought about it in terms of the context of like sex or intimacy. So you see clients that maybe struggle with, um, social anxiety or other rel related 
conditions. And that's also an area where you, that a surrogate partner like could be useful. Yes, exactly. And this is kind of one of the ways that the process has changed over the years. Yeah. Right. Surrogate partner therapy was originally conceived by Masters and Johnson way back in the 60s. And it was introduced to the public in their book, Human Sexual Inadequacy, which was released in 1970. And their uh, clinic was all about helping people overcome sexual dysfunction. And they brought in surrogate partners for those who did not have their own partner as a teammate to helping those people address some kind of sexual dysfunction. Mm. However, you know, and they were really um, you know, focused on sexual dysfunction and how did they measure success? It was the ability to engage in intercourse, in, in sexual intercourse. Now, since, since then, it's been more than more than half a century since they introduced this process. And over time, it has evolved and changed to meet the needs of, of the modern era. Yeah. And so these days, we don't view it just as a way to treat sexual dysfunction, although that can be included because sex is often part of relationship. Sure. But we view it more as a way to help people overcome hurdles with relationships and intimacy and can include social situations and um, social connections as well. But let me just give a little more background. A big part of the work we do is creating a foundation for healing, creating a context for healing. Because if you put someone in a situation that they're not prepared for or is triggering, then they're not going to benefit from it. Sure. Causes more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah, they might dissociate, uh, they might kind of white knuckle it and push through. Mm. And that's not the kind of experience that we want to create. Way back in my, in the early days of my practice, I had an appointment with a client and the experience I had with this client really reinforced in me the importance of this foundational work. In the course of a session, I asked this client if she would like to, to share a hug. Incidentally, as a cisgender heterosexual male surrogate partner, I work with clients who identify as women, both cis and trans. Also work with non-binary clients as well, but the majority of my experience has been with uh, cisgender women so I will use uh, she, her pronouns to refer to the clients in the examples. So in the course of this meeting, I asked the client if she would like to share a hug. She said yes. And so we hugged. And I continued with the rest of the session thinking that everything was okay. Mm. There was no indication that I got that there was a problem. But then she canceled her next appointment. And I'm grateful to this day that she let me know why. 
whenever I asked her if she wanted to share a hug, she didn't want to, and yet she didn't feel comfortable saying no. So she did something she didn't want to do. I didn't pick up on it. And then after that, she didn't feel safe to continue. This really made me aware that there are certain things that need to be established right at the beginning. We need to establish that the client knows what they want and what they don't want, that they have that awareness. Then the client needs to be able to move toward what they want and set boundaries against what they don't want. And the way that this is typically done is through communication, both verbal and nonverbal. So these three things, awareness, boundaries, and communication, are really important to establish right at the beginning. And because these three words start with A, B, and C, <laughs> and because they're so foundational, I've started calling them the ABCs. So a big part of the work at the beginning for many weeks, possibly even many months, is working with awareness, boundaries, and communication. So we have all these different exercises. You know, I have a palette of 50 different exercises that I can do with clients in order to explore these topics in order to teach these skills. Those exercises generally involve touch or communication or relaxation, self-awareness, body image, or things like that. That's so interesting uh, in that I imagine the experience of the client feeling pressured to say yes or to engage in touch, I mean, it's really applies to real life all the time. Um, so I think that must've been a really interesting experience for, and, and yeah, I mean, glad that she mentioned it to you. So does that happen if somebody doesn't, um, want to continue? Is there a way to, to, to find out why? Oh, well, absolutely. This is not like, getting on a high-speed train in France where <laughs> you get on the train in Paris and you can't get off until Dijon. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, this is more like going on a bike ride or even going on a hike in a national park where we get to stop and look at the wildflowers and, you know, hear the sound of the, of the river or the creeks trickling off in the distance. We get to stop at any time and to reassess. Yeah. So we start at the beginning, getting a sense of what the goals are. Typically we meet all three in the same room, right? Because there's three people on the team. We have a surrogate partner and a therapist or collaborating clinician. And then we have the client. And we want to get clear on what the goals are, because that's what helps us set our direction. And once we move in that direction, the pacing is determined based on the needs of the client. And we all have discussions to see how that's going and if any adjustment is necessary. 
Mm. And, and that's the big, the big thing that surrogate partner therapy is oriented towards, right? The, a client who needs this kind of help hasn't been able to reach their relationship goals in, in the wild, shall we say, or in yeah. organic environments or through dating. This typically happens if someone has a history of trauma or if someone is dealing with a large amount of fear and anxiety, which may also be caused by trauma, or if they're following these socially prescribed models, the social conditioning of like who we're supposed to be as a man or a woman, um, what we need to do to be valued in relationship, who is worthy of love, who is attractive, all these ideas. Incidentally, someone who is non-binary or gender fluid or gender expansive, someone like that has generally already started to question these gender roles and realize that they don't fit with all of them. Well, I believe that most of us don't fit perfectly with all of them. And part of becoming who we are is exploring which of these gender roles work for me and which don't. And a lot of times, women in general are socialized to be people pleasers, which as you said, means that they might have a tendency to defer to me, defer to me as a professional, defer to me as a man, you know, defer to me as, as the expert. And I wanna make sure that this doesn't happen because I don't want to reinforce someone's tendency to defer to me, right? They're already really good at that. Instead, we want to take a completely different approach and help them get in touch with what they like and what they want, even if it's different than what they think I want. And to be able to communicate that and to ask for what they want and to stand in it and to realize that they deserve to have that. And the work might be a little different with someone who has different kind of socialization. Like if someone is socialized into a sense of entitlement or a belief that they need to perform then they need to kind of overcome this performance model and realize that they are worthy of connection just as they are, you know, without having to earn it. So a big part of what we work with on the way to helping the client reach their goals is looking at all the barriers that have interfered 
Yeah. I love the language that you're using surrounding it. Uh, because I think it must be really interesting as a, as a man who works primarily with women, I imagine that's a, why a lot of people might come to you because they want to heal their relationship with the people pleasing or deferring to a person in power or deferring to a man specifically regarding maybe like intimacy or relational experiences, but how that must be such a dynamic to navigate, but also a really healing one. The majority of the clients that I've worked with, perhaps even hundred percent have had experiences of past abuse and trauma. And whenever you are in those experiences, what you learn, maybe not intellectually, but what you learn at the body level and at the nervous system level is that what you want doesn't matter. Mm. And that there's no point in having boundaries because they're not going to be respected anyway. And so what we need to do is to overcome that conditioning and to slow the process down so that the you know client knows that they are not going to be facing negative consequences for doing something different and this is different than the experiences they've had in the past and it's also different from what they might experience in a dating environment Right? If someone goes out and is in the dating environment, there's another person here and the other person has their own needs, fears, and issues, and they might withdraw at any time. Yeah. So there's always the fear of, well, I'm going to say rejection, although I put that in quotes because another way to look at it is it's not really rejection. It's just this other person's not interested. But it can be perceived as rejection. And therefore, if, I, if I'm afraid of rejection, I might not be willing to show who I am. And I might instead present an image that I think the other person's going to like. Based on my social conditioning. Yeah. So this process is really about getting solid enough in myself that I'm willing to be who I am and see the results and know that if this person isn't interested in that, then not only is that okay, but that's actually a blessing because I don't have to invest time in them. I can be available right now for someone else who is able to accept me for who I am. Yeah, that's a really beautiful reframe of rejection or maybe not being wanted. So you are a co-founder of the Surrogate Partner Collective. Can you tell me, so I imagine it's a group of surrogate partners and like, can you tell me a little bit about how that was starting a business like that? The vision of the Surrogate Partner Collective is cultivating a world of embodied connection. The way we do this is by providing community support and training for anyone involved with practicing 
surrogate partner therapy, including both surrogate partners and collaborating clinicians. Mm. And it's been quite a process to do this. There have been, oh, three different iterations that we've gone through and it's we've been working out um trying to find a common vision so the surrogate partner collective also offers trainings to surrogate partners and clinicians uh collaborating clinicians exactly i starting in the year 2000 i developed a couple different courses that are intended for collaborating clinicians to educate them about the best ways of collaborating with surrogate partners. Mm. One of them is called collaborating with surrogate partners in the triadic model, mm-hmm. three and a half hour course, which is the role of the clinician at every step on the, on the way. Then there's another course called how to help generalize surrogate partner therapy. One of the main objectives of this work is for clients to be able to have skills and experience and confidence that they can take with them that will help them form future relationships. That's one of the primary objectives of the therapy all the time, regardless of the specific issue that the client wants to address. You know, I always hold this image that, you know, the objective is to help you know what um, safe and re- reciprocal relationships look like and be able to help you construct them with your future partners. And it turns out that there are concrete interventions that can be taken both by surrogate partners and by collaborating clinicians to support the client in this process of generalization. And so I developed a course that was specifically all about generalization and how to do it and how to support it. That course is valuable both for for therapists as well as as well as surrogate partners. Mm. So incidentally, you know, I used to use the word therapist to refer to the third leg of the triad. Okay. Right? Because there's always a triad. Surrogate partner therapy by definition is always done by three people and it's called the triadic model. And I used to refer to that third leg as the therapist. However, there are some uh, people who might play that role who are technically not therapists. And an example is a clinician I've worked with, Dr. Heather Howard, who's located in San Francisco. She is a clinical sexologist as well as an ASEC certified sex educator and an ASEC certified sex counselor. But she always reminds me that she is not technically a therapist. And so that's why I've started to using the word clinician because Mm -hmm. it's more general than just therapist, but it refers to the person who is supporting the process in that third leg of the triad. How does one become a surrogate partner what is what does training entail can anybody call themselves a surrogate partner well the first thing that i would say is 
in response to the last question you just asked. As I said, by definition, surrogate partner therapy involves three people. Mm. So that means if someone is not practicing in collaboration with a, a clinician, then they are not operating as a surrogate partner mm. and are not practicing surrogate partner therapy. Now, sometimes surrogate partners have a wealth of skills that they might use in other contexts. Like with, with some clients, I might work with them as, a, as an intimacy coach or something. It's a different container that has different boundaries and is used to address different issues. But you can only call yourself a surrogate partner if you're working in the triadic model. Mm. Um, so beyond that, there is training, like uh, training and mentorship is recommended as a part of the development process because it's a complex practice. You know, whenever you are working with clients who need help in this area, there's something that they've been doing that isn't conducive to having healthy, fulfilling, reciprocal relationships. And whenever they start to form a relationship with the surrogate partner, it's likely that whatever they're doing that's not effective is going to show up in the relationship with the surrogate partner. Mm. And that's really great because that's the way that it can be seen and resolved. Yeah. Information we need to know. Yeah, that's the way that it can be worked on. That's precisely why they they need our help. That's precisely why they're in this process. But in order to work with that, I need to be solid enough in myself and what I'm doing that I don't get hooked into an unhealthy dynamic. That I need to be able to stay outside I need to be able to stay outside a dynamic that might perpetuate the things that they're already doing. Mm. You know, if you look at the research of uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's at the UCLA School of Medicine, uh, he studies a lot around attachment patterns. And he said that children, when they are in their school and when they go to they're like six or seven years old and they first go into the schooling environment they will tend to elicit from the teachers or other caregivers the same dynamic they had with their parents right the teachers aren't even aware of the dynamics they had with their parents but end up you know, the danger is that they can get into the same dynamic. And, and this can also happen in the surrogate partner therapy modality. And so I need to be able to be aware of when that is happening and not get hooked into it. Yeah. And it's really valuable to have supportive community, to have mentorship, to have you know, healthy relationships for me in my personal life as well. 
healthy relationship. I, I, I feel like I kind of. No, it makes. No, it makes so much sense because even in, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, Mm -hmm. there's transference and counter-transference happening. And I imagine that adding a touch or the intimacy component, even more so the way that is present in surrogate partner therapy, of course it complicates things more. And there needs to be even more awareness maybe surrounding you need to have a team approach. And it sounds like the, the, the triad is for everybody's protection, not only the client, but also the surrogate partner and also just everybody to make sure that everybody is on track and that things remain, the container remains the container. Exactly. And that it remains therapeutic. You mentioned the word transference. Mm. It is likely that whatever issues the client has with relationship is going to show up in this context. We want it to. Exactly. So we want to make effective therapeutic use of transference. Mm. And we also want to have a supportive structure in place that allows us to benefit from it. And that's why I describe this environment that we're creating as both lifelike and supportive, right? It's lifelike because the way that we form this relationship is intended to model the way people form relationships in other contexts. And the same potentials for other relationships are potential here. There's the potential for feelings. There's the potential for actual intimate, even sexual contact. There's the potential for touch and nudity and intimate communication and all of these things that people are going to experience in their future relationships. So we wanna give them experience with every phase of the life cycle of relationship, including the ending. That's so interesting. I imagine when people hear about your work, you know, I imagine you get a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what attracted you to surrogate partner therapy? You know, what, what, why do you believe in it? Why, like, what are the healing powers that you, that, that like drove you to start a collective of it and and make it your life's, you know, work ultimately, or, or, or one of your life's work? The most important thing that drew me into it is I have experienced changes in my life as a result of relationships and deeply connecting and being accepted Mm. as I'm willing to be completely vulnerable and and share who I am. That's been transformative in, in my life. I also I also did a series of workshops starting in 1999 from an organization called High 
for, which stands for the Human Awareness Institute. Okay. They offer workshops in love, intimacy, and sexuality. And those have helped me become you know, who I am with respect to those topics and has also informed the work that I do. Then in the year 2000, I met someone who we, we started dating, but she had been the victim of sexual assault just a couple months before we met, right? She had been date raped. Mm. And so as we were getting to know each other, there was the attraction between us. However, I could also sense a lot of fear on her part, which of course is completely understandable because she wouldn't want to repeat that experience. And she didn't know if she could trust me and she didn't want to be re-traumatized. And so I realized that if I came on to her too fast or too strong, that she would withdraw. And then neither of us would have the connection that we wanted. And I found that by attuning to her and matching her pace, that we could move forward in a way that worked for both of us to gradually build more and more intimacy. And you know, we were together for um, six years after that, and she's still very close in my, in my life. Um, in fact, I'm meeting with her later today. So that was a big part of me doing this work. I also found out about this work in 2004 from someone I know who um, was interested in becoming a surrogate partner. And she told me her intention of her, uh, her intention to be trained. And she let me know about an organization called the International Professional Surrogates Association, which was where I did my training in 2008. You asked a bit ago what the training process involves. Well, the training of the surrogate partner collective involves three parts. The first part is a five-day in-person workshop where we explore the in-person component of the work. Anything that has to be done in person, we do in this five-day in-person workshop. Then there's a lot of theory and uh, intellectual knowledge and other stuff that goes along with it well, as well. So then we deliver that in the three months of weekly sessions after the in-person workshop is completed. And that's the second part. Then the third part is a supervised apprenticeship where the apprentice, she's sees clients under the supervision of a more experienced surrogate who mentors them. So after every session with the client, they check in not only with the therapist on the case, but also with their mentor. And it took me more than two years to complete um, my internship. And I've been practicing ever since. And now I'm at the place in my career where I'm mentoring others. Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The 
the three-part approach how does a person find a surrogate partner is it usually recommended first through a psychotherapist or like a verbal therapist or how does that can someone come to you without a therapist and then you connect them as well like to make the three process or three part um the triad i get referrals from in three different ways one is from therapists that i've collaborated with in the past or are familiar with this process the second is sometimes i have clients who contact me directly i have a pretty public presence and I do a lot of speaking engagements and uh, have a lot of traffic to my website. So sometimes people will contact me directly. And if that's the case, the first thing I kind of get a sense of whether they are appropriate for the work. But really the first question I ask them is, are you currently working with a therapist or will you need to be referred to one? If you are working with a therapist, have you told them of your intention to do surrogate partner therapy? Are they aware of their role in the process and are they willing to fulfill it? And if they're not, you know, I have the option that we can use to educate them, which is the collaborating with surrogate partners course, which you know, really gives them it's a very effective way of giving them a lot of information about the process and how it works and their role in it. The third way that I would get might get referrals is from other surrogate partners or surrogate partner professional organizations who get inquiries from clients. And there are currently three different professional organizations that that do get inquiries from clients. The Surrogate Partner Collective is one. Another one is the International Professional Surrogates Association. They have a referrals coordinator. And then there's the Embrace Surrogate Partner Therapy Resource Group. And all of them might receive inquiries and you know, might refer them to others that are more geographically near the client or would be appropriate for some other reason. There really are only about 50 practicing surrogate partners in the country. Wow. So there aren't a lot. I'm, we are working on fulfilling a need to have more and a greater diversity of practitioners out there. And one one of the ways that we've been doing that is to you know developing our training program mm. you know, to be able to contribute to those resources of uh, geographically as well as you know providing diversity in in other ways why would someone seek a surrogate partner what are some of the more maybe within your you know practice who reaches out to you the broad category is that someone needs help with a relationship issue. And yet, due to the relationship issue itself, 
they haven't been able to find a supportive partner. Mm. So sometimes we resolve relationship issues by being in relationship and by trying things, making mistakes, hopefully learning from those mistakes. But eventually we might piece together some degree of connectedness. But there are certain situations and it doesn't mean that it's a moral failing. No, there are legitimate reasons why someone might not have formed healthy, fulfilling reciprocal relationships in their life. And it's usually as a result of past trauma. You know, an example is I had a client who was in her late 40s, had never had any kind of intimacy or romance in her life at all. She had never held hands, never kissed anyone, and just had a huge amount of fear and anxiety around any kind of intimacy. And this was largely as a result of the sustained and repeated sexual abuse that she suffered at the hands of her father. Mm. It's completely understandable that when one of your primary caregivers, someone who is supposed to keep you safe in this world and protect you is the source of your abuse, how that would impact your sense of safety in the world and how much that you could trust people, especially people like that, you know, meaning men or, or someone who you're considering relying on. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my clients, if not all, have had huge amounts of past trauma, um, really negative be been impacted by um, unhealthy relationships, like being having a parent or uh, a spouse who was narcissistic. You know, whenever you're in a long-term relationship with someone who's narcissistic, you develop certain coping mechanisms to survive in that in that situation. Yeah. And these coping mechanisms are great for survival in such a situation, but they may not be very healthy to get along with someone who's not narcissistic. Mm. So as a result of past experiences of all kinds, someone might develop a lot of different fear and anxiety, fear of intimacy, fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, performance anxiety, need to control. Yeah. And so this is another situation why someone might not, they simply might be too afraid to take the risk to put themselves out there and to form relationships and that they need a, a safe, supportive environment to gradually open up and develop these skills. Hmm. I mentioned earlier that sometimes people have uh, deeply ingrained ideas about who they need to be to be worthy of love based on their social conditioning. And so they might then be following those scripts and presenting that image of who they think they should be rather than 
acting from their genuine impulses. And they may not even be aware of their genuine impulses because their past experiences have encouraged them to ignore those things because they weren't safe. Another reason a client might come to see me is because they get to a point in their life where they have less experience than might be expected to someone in their situation. Mm. And this is usually a result of the other three factors that I mentioned. But if you have someone in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who has no relationship experience or no sexual experience, then not only are they dealing with whatever's prevented them from having those connections in the first place, but now they have to deal with the way that other people respond to them. There's a stigma associated yeah. with you know, someone who's not as experienced as others might be. So then they have to deal with the way that the culture at large perceives them and the way that other people perceive them and respond to them. And so that might make it even less safe. Yeah, even them. worse. Yeah, because they're not willing to you know, take the risk to share that to the person because they're afraid of the other person going away. Yeah. Which they will perceive as rejection, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine to... I mean, this comes up in my work as a sex therapist a lot with erectile dysfunction as well. And so kind of same thing, you have this experience and then oftentimes because of the stigma and misunderstanding and lack of support, then there becomes multiple negative experiences, which re-ingrain the mm. whole thing to begin with and then makes it even harder to feel safe in a situation and then it just keeps compounding in that same way and i think that makes a lot of sense to me about one of the huge reasons that surrogate partner therapy would be so useful for people that have that exact experience of where like the stigma adds to the prob the initial problem quote mm -hmm. And then it just keeps being re-ingrained and then we're even more unsafe and more scared and more all of the things that are going on. And so they really need a safe place to, to practice and to really relearn accurate scripts about mm -hmm. what's happening. Right. As an example, if I had a client who came, who was somewhere on the asexual spectrum, what success might look like for them was to be accepting of themselves yeah. as being asexual and to have some languaging to be able to communicate that to other people and to be able to find the supportive community of others who might be in that situation. It wouldn't be getting them to be engaged, be able to engage in something that they're not really interested in, right? Okay. So that's the difference between helping someone get in touch with their innate impulses and their innate desires versus following the script that we've all been told is what we should be doing. You know, what it's, what I should be doing as a man or as a woman, or what does sex look like? 
what do I need to do to be worthy of connection? Or even, you know, desire, like, why don't I have this, you know, wild sex mm. drive when society tells me that I should be wanting this all the time or doing this thing? It's like we get, there's so many mixed messages and confusion and like loss of sense of self of what we actually want versus what we should want um, being put on us all the time. Right. So the work, especially with people pleasers, mm. involves helping someone get so clear about what they want and what they like that they can start to lead with their own desire. Right. And this can never happen as long as she's responding to what she thinks I want. Yeah. So a big part of the work is for me to not let her get distracted by, you know, what she thinks I want. And there's a number of different ways that we work with this. Uh, I incorporate a lot of material from an approach called the Wheel of Consent um, by Betty Martin, which is all about paying attention to what are your genuine innate desires rather than following, you know, the script. It's, it's so layered um, because particularly maybe when it relates to intimacy and, and sex that, it's not as easy as just get in touch with what you want in the moment because there's so many other factors at play, such as thinking about what this other person wants. I mean, physical and emotional safety being added components and all of these other things that are going into that moment where it's not so easy. It's like, oh, what do you want? You know, what do you want to do? And so I think having a container where as a client, you a have to really trust that the person you're with really only cares about that. There's not, you know, there's no pressure or coercion or anything going on on their end because they this is for you entirely. That really is should should be indicative of real life and what happens in in real life, but for so many is not that this is a real place to like practice that true moment. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 In the dating environment, the other person has their own agenda. Expectations. Yeah. Right. Whereas this, this is what really differentiates learning through the surrogate partner therapy model, as opposed to learning through your own life experiences is whenever you're dating, the other person is not signing up to help you with your difficulties. And that's exactly what we do in, in surrogate partner therapy. The surrogate partner consciously is choosing to set aside what they want mm. and to be acting in the interests of the client. And Therefore, the client doesn't have to face the fear of rejection. The client has the time and the space to 
really consider and explore what it is that they want. We take away their response to other people as much as possible. Mm. And sometimes that space is needed, especially to overcome deeply ingrained trauma responses. Why do you think, even working as a sex therapist, a sex and relationship therapist, I personally don't feel that surrogate partner therapy is that mainstream. And why do you think people or therapists don't refer? I I have actually even had people reach out to me um, saying, hey, my, my old therapist would not refer me to a surrogate partner. Um, can you help me in that process? And why do you think that people or therapists um, are hesitant maybe to, to refer or incorporate surrogate partner therapy in their practice? There are a lot of misconceptions about the work. Yeah. And I think that a big misconception is that people believe that it's still done now the way that it was done in Masters and Johnson's time. Okay. Where they viewed it as a treatment for sexual dysfunction and they viewed success as having intercourse. Also in that time, a common title that people used to refer to someone like me was, uh, and I put this in quotes, sex surrogate. And just the title of sex surrogate creates this idea that it's about sex and it's my job to have sex with the client. Well, I'm constantly, you know, trying to correct the use of this title because it's not my job to have sex with the client. In fact, there can be times whenever that would be not only not helpful, but that could be harmful or re-traumatizing. The only time we engage in an activity, any activity, is under two conditions. The first condition is that it's relevant to helping the client reach their goals. Mm. And the second condition is that what we've done previously has created such a container that would allow that activity to be corrective, right? Everything that we do has to be healing and transformative. We don't wanna be taking habits and patterns that aren't working and reinforcing them. Yeah. And so that's why we start right way back at the beginning. And you know, you you said a moment ago that it's not about just it's not always that easy or simple to say, well, what do I want versus how am I going to interact with another person? And that's why we really start right with very basics. We will do very uh, simple exercises where we will start out just making requests of one another. And I will lead someone through a process where at the beginning, they say no to every request, just as a way to have an experience of what it's like to say no, mm. to have that be respected. And 
um, and then after we're really comfortable saying no and have the capacity to do that, then we might move on to saying yes to different requests and seeing what that is like. And it's not so much about the answer you give, but it's more about your experience that goes on as you're considering what answer to give. Yeah. And then eventually we might, um, sometimes I might have someone do a phase where in response to a request, they give one reason why they might want to do that thing and one reason why they might not want to do that thing. So that helps to expand it beyond the binary, right? Is that there are uh, different impulses and desires within me, and some of them might be conflicting. Yeah. But to be able to communicate that and to reveal that to a partner not only builds awareness within yourself, but it helps you uh, communicate with a partner in such a way that you might be able to find a win-win situation. Then we might get to another phase later on where um, in response to every request, then we would check in and answer honestly. And another phase later where we answer honestly, and then if the answer is yes, we would go ahead and do that thing. But if the answer is no, then we're of course not going to do that. And these exercises are specifically constructed to begin with the basics and yet build upon them to gradually get more and more realistic and to involve more and more risk and to become more and more like the situations that they're gonna experience organically once they get beyond this therapeutic container. Mm. We also do lots of work with touch where uh, a client starts to relate with their body based on the sensations that they get from it. And they can pay attention to what they like and what they don't like and what feels good about touching someone else or engaging with someone else. And when we start to see our body as a source of pleasure, then that begins a profound shift in body image. Yeah. Many times we see our body as something that doesn't look the way we want it to, or doesn't look the way we think it should based on the social conditioning that we've gotten from other people or from the media. You know, I don't look like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or George Clooney. <laughs> and, um, and yet, if I can see my body as a source of pleasure, then I relate to it differently as if it's something that doesn't meet the ideal. Yeah, so it sounds like one of the one of the main misconceptions about surrogate partner therapy is that you are a sex sex surrogate and that you are having sex with clients. And it sounds like actually that was maybe the initial definition that was applied to it with Masters and Johnson, but that it's transformed over the years and that it's much more than that. And it's actually become about 
relationships and intimacy and really social interaction as well. Are there any other misconceptions about surrogate partner therapy that you feel really negatively impact uh, the work? Well, some people have the idea that that there's legal or ethical concerns with it. And if they have the idea that if they're going to send a client to someone and they're going to have sex with them, then that would be cause for concern. But the, the whole process is a way to gradually help someone build skills. Mm. And then eventually, you know, we go through an arc of this relationship and we go through different phases. And as I mentioned before, we can take as much time as necessary for each of the phases. We can even turn around and go back. And then we eventually get to a point where we reassess. Actually, we're reassessing all along the way. Mm. How are we doing with respect to your goals? Do you feel like you're making progress? Are your relationships different? You know, relationships with friends, family, coworkers. Are you showing up any different? You know, this is part of the generalization process, a way of helping them see the changes that they're already made. You know, we want them to see changes all along the process rather than get to the end goal and then you're different. Now, most of the work that we do is done with our clothes on because it's the foundational skills that are most important. Yeah. And so eventually then we we start to make choices about whether we want to remove some clothes. Is that helpful to the process? You know, do we want to have experiential sex education? Meaning we might do an anatomy tour of different parts of the anatomy. We might do body image work where we are looking at our bodies and talking about our feelings and our relationships with different parts of our body. And many of these activities are really powerful. And then eventually we get to a point where we might, where then we decide, you know, is this still something that is important and relevant to your goals? Hmm. Because if so, there is the potential for that, but it's certainly not a requirement. So can you address maybe some of the concerns that a client may have or or fears, and I know that it's really situational depending on what they are coming in with, but what can a person maybe expect from surrogate partner therapy, maybe the first appointment or what that would look like? Um, I imagine like if it were me, I would be like, oh my God, am I going to be forced to do something? Like, is it going to, are we going to immediately be jumping into like touch? Like you said, you know, kind of a, and I know you address this with like going over the ABCs, but what would a, what's a common like first appointment potentially? Okay. Well, the first thing to say is that nobody is ever pressured or expected to do yeah. anything that's not right for them. Yeah. But that would be antithetical to what it is that we want to accomplish. You know, most people, especially people pleasers, 
already have a well-developed skill of putting their needs aside and deferring to other people. Mm. That is not something that we want to reinforce. Instead, we want to you know, help them get in touch with their, their agency and their desires. And surrogate partner therapy basically is a situation where the client gets to learn from their own experiences. Mm. Also, because I am forming this temporary relationship with them, I get to teach healthy relationship skills by demonstration, by modeling. So I can, you know, so many people say, well, I'm willing to be vulnerable provided you go first. I was just going to ask a similar question about that. Yeah. Okay. So what I do is I have the responsibility and the, the honor, the pleasure of being able to go first. Mm. So I will take every opportunity that I can in order to be vulnerable and to be authentic as a way of demonstrating that skill because they get to you know, see what that's like to be in a situation of authenticity and to take notice to how it builds the connection. What was the rest of the, oh, so what clients fears might have. Yeah. Well, one other uh, concern that a client might have is, is the cost. Because mm. as you might imagine, having ongoing sessions with two different professionals can end up to be quite costly. And those of us in the profession have been looking at ways to address this and respond to this. And the folks at the Embrace Surrogate Partner Therapy Resource Group, which is embracespt.org, okay. have started a fund. And anyone can go there and make a contribution to this fund, which is going to be used to subsidize the cost for uh, people who are financially, you know, less well off because it can be quite expensive. Yeah. So, um, and as far as what goes at the beginning, it really varies based on the client. Like with one client, I might do in one session what I might do 15 sessions later with another client. So it really varies and the the pacing is customized for each individual person in their situation based on you know, feedback and conversations with them as well as with all three members of the team. Mm. As an example, I had one client who came to see me who was experiencing a lot of anxiety and it was clear that any kind of touch was not appropriate in our first session. And so what I did in order to, to work on the ABCs was I invited her to sit in a chair in the middle of the room. Then I would position myself at different places around the room. And in every position I was in, I would invite her to rate her level of anxiety on a scale of one to 10. 
Mm, interesting. Yeah. And she, so what this did was it started to create a greater level of discernment into her internal experience rather than seeing it as either, oh, I'm terrified or I'm fine in terms of the binary, which is common with people, especially those who have, you know, had past trauma. Yeah. She started to see that it's a spectrum. There's a continuum of anxiety on here. And there are certain things that might cause her to move slightly up or slightly down on that scale. Mm. And so as I was moving around the room, she learned that she became more anxious if I was behind her. She became more anxious if I was looking directly at her. She became less anxious if I was looking out the window or if I was sitting down. And one interesting thing we found is one point I laid down on the ground in front of her. So I was actually much lower than her. And I thought that her anxiety might decrease in that situation, but instead it peaked. Interesting. And her anxiety became really high. Yeah. And what we do in this situation is now the client is starting to get a sense of curiosity. Like, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? Mm. And, and they're also seeing it as, as a spectrum with thresholds. But this, this brings a lot more awareness to greater levels of discernment or greater levels of granularity in, in their experience. And in so doing, we can build this awareness without even any touch. You know, two or three sessions later, we did get to a point where touch was appropriate and could be undertaken uh, with comfort and with consent. All through this process, I want to increase the level of agency of the client so that she then can start to learn from her own agency and from her own experiences. At the beginning, I might say, or I might describe in detail an exercise that we're gonna do, then ask for consent to go ahead with that exercise. But very quickly, even sometimes even in the first session, then I might start giving the client choices. Once they know the options that are available, I might say, would you like to do um, sensate focus on the arms or you know, nurturing touch on the arms? Or would you like to do uh, may I will you phase three, which is this exercise where we're making requests of each other. And then I'll let them choose and gradually giving more and more choices until eventually I start to ask the client questions like, well, what do you think is the best thing to move forward at this point right now? And then let them have even more agency in where we go. And then I become the humble assistant, <laughs> supporting them in any way that I can to step into that 
role of leadership and autonomy with respect to their own desires. This brings up the question of what the client is paying for. The client is paying for a therapeutic situation that is both lifelike as well as safe and supportive. The client is not paying for any of the specific activities that we do. The client is not paying for communication games. The client is not paying for touch. The client is not paying for someone to get naked with them. Those activities are only included when they are therapeutically relevant. If it's not agreed by all three members of the team, not only that it's therapeutically useful, but that it's the right activity to move forward, it's not gonna happen. I found when people understand this, they no longer have any concern about the legality of this process. But if there was ever any doubt, the precedents that we do have are all positive, including Kamala Harris, who's on record as having said about surrogate partner therapy, if it's between consenting adults and referred by licensed therapists and doesn't involve minors, then it is not illegal. The four co-founders of the Surrogate Partner Collective also created a formal statement on the ethics and legality. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, if someone already has a take charge personality mm. and already kind of has a sense of entitlement and feel like, you know, this is what I need to do. I need to exert myself. I need to overcome obstacles. Then working with someone like that might be completely different. And it would be about helping that person see the benefits of attuning to someone else and to seeing that person as someone to connect with rather than an obstacle to be overcome so that I can act on my desires hmm. and move yeah. into a greater level of reciprocity, you know, rather than, you know, this is a generalization of course, but, but sometimes a lot of, you know, men are socialized to act on their desires without considering the consequences or without considering the the feelings and the needs of the other person. And if that's the case, we want to overcome that social conditioning. So whatever social conditioning the person is ruled by, we want to help them move beyond it and to respond more accurately and in connection in the moment, you know, rather than playing out those those gender roles. I love that. And I love that you spoke to a different part of the spectrum, whereas somebody that has maybe a more entitled or or less attunement with what other people's needs, that how you would work in that way too, because it's all, it's all, it all can be played out. Well, if anyone wants to know more information. Yes. Tell us where we can find you. My website is surrogatepartner.us. 
there's loads of videos and presentations and other interviews there, as well as lots of general information. Then there's also the website of the Surrogate Partner Collective. It's surrogatepartnercollective.org. And the Surrogate Partner Collective has training, community, and support for practitioners of surrogate partner therapy, both surrogate partners and collaborating clinicians. And there's a number of other organizations that are relevant. There's the International Professional Surrogates Association at surrogatetherapy.org. And there's the Embrace Surrogate Partner Therapy Resource Group at embracespt.org. It's a really exciting time to be part of this community and part of this profession because there are more and more people who are out there raising awareness and spreading the word. And I'm honored to be one of them myself. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on. And thank you so much for listening to another episode of Psych in the City. As always, anything that we spoke about, any resource that we mentioned is listed in the show notes. You can reach out to me at psychandthecitybk at gmail.com if you have a story to share or a topic you want me to focus on, let me know. Thanks.